HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 at Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn! Joined as usual, Nastasia The Hammer Lopez. How are you doing, Stas? Good. I like love the fact that there's people out there who like imagine like why you are the hammer, and all they need to do now is look at Lennon's wife's picture. I know, and they know. Did you see someone uh, wrote in and said that we should just make T-shirts with Lennon's wife's? Yeah, photo we on? made T-shirts, and you people don't buy them. So. You people. What was her name again? Lennon's wife. No one can remember because Nast- if Nastasia can't remember, then how am I supposed to remember? Yeah. Like Nastasia yeah, is like half Russo-Ukrainian, like you know, a potent self-hating mix there, wow. and. Uh, yeah, potent. And, uh, of course, as usual, we got Dave in the booth. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing all right. So am I supposed to... Re- I have a piece of paper on you know our, the drill. our desk, Rain and it says pre-roll ad, but since we've already rolled, perhaps I can post-pre-roll. You want to post-pre-roll this? Yeah, yeah. That's how we do. While you're listening to the post-pre-roll, call in all of your questions, cooking or not, you know, preferably cooking-related questions, to 718 Wait. 718-497-2128. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. It's like I don't even actually think about it. It's almost like you know, uh, it just kind of like pops out. It's we like got a, one. What a caller! Yeah, Heritage Radio Network. Oh, nice. All right. Well, I'll do the pre-roll while I'm figuring that out. Today's program is brought to you by Modernist Pantry, providing magical ingredients for the modern cook. For free videos, recipes, tips, and tricks, visit blog.modernistpantry.com. All right, caller, you're on the air. I think. Did we lose him, Dave? Caller. Caller, you're on the air. Caller. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Hey, uh, so I am a cook uh, in uh, New Orleans, and I uh, recently did a uh, pop-up with ramen. Um, And the issue that I had is, uh, so I I followed the recipe, uh, basically, of uh, Ivan Ramen's book. Right. And uh, uh, floured the noodles with cornstarch. 
Um, but after doing like a bunch of batches uh, on the sides of the like the wire basket, the cornstarch started to build up and like form this like you know paste. Yeah, yeah, I bet it would. Uh, I was wondering if you had any like suggestions on uh, how to avoid that. Well, okay, so give me the exact give me the exact procedure. You're, t- so you're taking like the new uh, what like and you're dusting them. What's the point again of dusting them in the cornstarch? Just give them a little bit of a like gluey outside. Or is it just yeah, a separation so, thing? So I'm hand-making the noodles, right. um, and I don't want them to stick because uh, if I don't use any cornstarch, then they stick. Right. And so when I go to uh, break them up in the water with chopsticks, they sort of crumble into short little pieces. Yeah, yes. Uh, and so the cornstarch helps to avoid that problem. But then, you know, once I do a bunch of batches, that you know, sticks to the wire uh, basket. How much uh, kind of how much par dehydration do they go through before they uh, they uh, before you boil them? How much what? How much like how long have they been sitting out like before you boil them? In other words, like are they dried sufficiently where you could sit there and do like a pre tap on like a on like a drying rack where you could just put your like the load on a drying rack and go pap 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 on on a sheet tray and like knock off the excess cornstarch? Or do you already do uh, that or what? I might be able to do that. Um, yeah, so I I just made them day of. Uh, so that they'd be fresh. Um, so they basically just sat, you know, in the cornstarch that I dusted them in. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the other issue is is that, like, if you're getting buildup on the basket, are, like, how are you loading? Are you loading direct into the water, or are you loading into baskets and dropping baskets? Uh, directly into the water. Yeah, okay. So what you're getting is just straight boil-off building up on the sides of the baskets. What about on the, uh, on the external sides of the pot? Like, what, are you, what are you cooking them in? What, kind of, what, what are you doing? You don't have a pasta maker, right? I mean, like uh, a pasta, so a pasta I, boiler? I'm making it in a pasta maker and then um, dusting them with cornstarch and then... No, no, I, uh, I, meant, I meant the cooking. You don't have like a pasta... You're not using like a, like a modified pasta deep fryer. You know what I'm talking about? Those pasta boilers? Uh, no, it's just, a, it's just like a... It's a um, pot with salted water. Yeah, yeah. So like... Uh, and how often are you skimming the stuff off the top? Uh, not, not very often. Yeah, uh, I mean... I, yeah, I mean, like, like once you have like free cornstarch in the system, like the stuff's going to like like boil around. Because remember, like it like uh, it's going to it's going to do that. So I would try to knock off the stuff on the outside, right? And I would skim like fairly often. So like like let's say you like normally, not normally, but if you're if you're fortunate enough to have an actual like pasta cooker. Right, uh-huh. it's got like a water in, and then like a like a drain off, so that you can take the scum off the top. It like basically automatically destarches the water, because okay. your water is always going to get starchier and starchier and starchier. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a, as you go, and so um, and I've never owned one. I've used my regular deep fryer as a pasta cooker before, okay. but um, it doesn't have like any of the fancy stuff. I've never owned a real one. You ever used Nastasia? Uh, you ever seen like Mark used to have one of? The, does he ha- does he have those now? Does he have like the fancy like like? Does he have the fat fancy ones that look like deep fryers for the pasta boiling? Uh, not now. But they're going to. Is that how, the way they're going to do it, or how are they no, finishing? It's custom. Cu- cu- of course, no, custom, very fancy. We're talking about pasta flyer, Mark Ladner's new uh, new venture. When's that opening, Stas? Two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, so you're gonna you're gonna invite me to anything? Any opening? Yeah. All right. We'll talk about it on the air. So like I would say, uh, I would skim more often. I would try to knock the cornstarch off. The problem is, is that I there's very few things I hate worse than trying to get uh, um, cooked starch off of uh, off of 
fry baskets. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a painful process. Oh, yeah. That's definitely something that you want to hire somebody else to do if you can. Like, you know what <laughs> okay. I mean? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Like, any free starch like that is going to uh, is going to do that. That's why I was asking kind of um, – like what level of dryness they are when they when they get out. Like I know, like I do the same thing. If you can keep them, if you can keep the noodles separated for even a couple of minutes before they go into like larger things. Like I, I, I can't picture your layout. You can use less stuff to coat them. You know what I mean? Like the the faster they have to touch each other, the you know the more of a, of insurance you need on the outside. But then remember, like what, what when you put the coating on the outside, like the coating is absorbing some of the moisture from the outside. Of the pasta almost acting like an instant dehydration on the on the surface of the of the noodle uh, right. so like after you know even like 30 minutes you should be able to like wrap a tap tap like prior to service to try to knock stuff off of it and then okay. you know because like you know i know people like fresh pasta makers some pasta makers for instance use cornstarch on larger not cornstarch uh, cornmeal on larger things like ravioli and like when they sell them to you they're swimming in freaking uh, um, you know, cornmeal. And so then, you know, it's a question of always getting it off. But, like, how are you storing it? Are you storing them in, like, are you, are you pre-portioning them and then storing them in, like, uh, in, like, fish tubs? Like, what are you doing? Right. Just, uh, yeah, I had them pre-portioned, uh, just, yeah, in a Lexan. And are you getting any clumping problems at all now? Uh, no, not, not as far as like, uh, I guess, you know, maybe it's like too much cornstarch, but there's no clumping issue. Yeah. Well, so like the good news is you have no clumping issues. So, so what I would do is just keep dialing it back until you start having issues. And the more you dial back the cornstarch in the finished thing, like the, the less often you're going to have to clean that disgusting stuff off the, uh, outside of the, uh, uh, of the baskets. I don't know if there's anything that'll just straight eat that. Like, you know, you, like, you know I, I tend not to keep around, the, um, around my place, like, tons of super caustic things. But, like, I know, like, at the French culinary, like, at night, like, those guys would just dip everything in, like, hyper-disgusting caustic chemicals to, like, burn everything off of everything. Um, okay. But I'm not saying I recommend that because I don't. And also, like, it's not efficient to, like, self-clean that stuff off of things because you soak up a lot of energy. And, like, uh, I've discovered that aluminum pans are ruined by self-cleaning. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. You throw an aluminum, like a sheet pan into a, uh, into a self-cleaning oven and it just wipes the temper. It cleans it. Cause like I hate cleaning, I hate cleaning everything, but like I super hate cleaning. A couple things I hate cleaning are fryer baskets and I hate them and I hate <laughs> yeah. cleaning off, uh, I hate cleaning off like sheet trays that have had like oily crap baked into them, like over the course of a whole like, you know, night, hate it. Yep. And so like, I always thought, well, maybe I can just burn that and you know. I don't know if your fry baskets have the rubber on them, but if you have the ones that don't have rubber, like theoretically you can self-clean. I don't know what it'll do to the chrome coating on it, but um, if it's chrome coated, it's supposed to. You know how some are actually – like they're supposed to all be stainless steel, but some of them aren't really. Do you ever notice that? Like some of them aren't really. Uh, yeah, they have the – the ones I have, I have the rubber uh, things on the handles. Yeah, yeah. So you can't do any of that, stu- that stuff anyway. But yeah, I don't know whether like uh, – I don't know whether some sort of hardcore oven cleaner will get that stuff off because that stuff's more effective, I think, on fats and proteins um, than on starch. I don't know. Okay. Anyway. Are there any other, like, uh, starches that might work any better? They're all going to clump up on you. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, uh, I'm a, you know, it depends on what you're going to, you know, the, the good thing, good news about cornstarch is, is that it's freaking cheap. You know what I mean? You're right. I mean, yeah. 
if you want to if you want to stay like weed on wheat crime, you can use pure weed starch. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, and that way, you know, you're you know, you only have one grain in that, and so you know, one less allergen to worry about. Um, okay. Right. But. Um, you know, it, it depends. You're not looking for functionality, right? Like you're not it, – it's not a functional aspect of the noodle. Like you're not looking for it to have like a like a velveted texture on the outside, right? Are right. You? It's just, it's mm. just like uh, – yeah, some people were complaining that, uh, you know, it was kind of gummy and then I checked the thing and it was, sure enough, you know, it was caked on there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like you – like uh, – I mean, just I would just try to use less of it. I don't think any other particular starch is going to change the – the because it's not you're not looking for a particular quality of the starch like if you want a starch like i really like potato starch a lot but that's in situations where like i'm frying or crisping things up and i want the specific like swelling capacity of potato starch you don't care you know what i mean you're just trying to separate stuff off so you know if you can afford the extra cost try wheat starch that way it's just one less thing to worry about Uh, but cornstarch is nice and cheap okay don't you don't you hate the way cornstarch feels yeah, right. Nastasia hates. I hate the way cornstarch feels. That squeaky feel. It doesn't bother you. It bothers me. The noise that cornstarch makes when you're when you're taking a when you lift it out of the I thing and you chills. squeeze the box yeah. and you squeeze that cornstarch box. That freaking noise. Man, I hate that noise. Man. Uh, all right. Well, good luck with it. Let us know how it works out. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, clumping issues wasn't that the uh, working title for this show? It was years ago. We were like, but you know, then we, it's not just clumping. It's not the only thing we're worried about. We're worried about you know. Anti-clumping. So, uh, so Nastasia, you'll enjoy this. On the way here, I was listening to all, like, not listening. My iPhone decided to play for me all the stuff that I listen to that you hate, like, like Kenny Rogers. You hate it when Kenny Rogers comes no, on. I don't mind Kenny Rogers. No, because you hate my reaction to it. Yeah. Like Coward of the County came on. You hate when I talk about Coward of the County. And then Smokey Robinson came on, and you hate when I listen to Smokey Robinson because I like his lyrics. It's like all the stuff that you hate. I like the music. I hate listening it to it with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's more me you hate than yes. the music. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's about right. You want to take another call? Uh, yeah, caller. You're on the air. Hey, Dave. It's uh, Matt calling from Mystic again. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Good. Uh, I just wanted to weigh in. You were talking about sort of uh, your the cookbook, low temp, and the finishing steps right. last, uh, last week. And uh, and I wanted to weigh in and just say that I would definitely be interested in your thoughts on like, sort of the, uh, the best the best way is to finish uh, low temp cooked products because I've had a circulator for a couple years now and some things I get uh, really great results with uh, and then sometimes I have sort of a disappointing results so right um, I mean well it's, it's, it's yeah it's a big I mean it's what I'm actually working on right now a lot like on Sunday I ran a bunch of tests and I'm trying to do like a lot of like uh test without the searsol just like cause so I can have things for people to do like without the, the searsol or without anything that's hardcore I'm trying to like de-hardcore everything uh, to see whether I can get good um, good results but like low temperature cooking almost always fails in the finishing step don't you think I think that's right um, because especially with like steaks I find and you were talking about sort of dropping down the temperature before you do the finishing step yep uh, and that sort of uh, sort of clarified things in my mind because I think that's sort of where I was falling short. Yeah, so uh, now now what I've been doing – so I've been testing recently. Now, a lot depends on, on – like let's say you're going to pan fin- – this is what I've been testing recently. Let's say you're going to pan finish the steak, okay? Uh, and let's say you're going to uh, – you, you choose like I'm going to do – 
So here's the thing. If, if you pre-sear – now, this is the argument that I have all the time with people. Um, if you pre-sear the meat versus post-sear the meat. Now um, – or both. I always, I usually recommend both. And other people, uh, you know, like Kenji, for instance, is like it doesn't matter. But here's the thing: it does matter because the if you do not pre-sear your meat, then you're going to have to sear it much longer afterwards to get the same level of crust. So then, the question that I have to whoever is making the you know the steak is: what level of crust do you want? If you're a crust fiend, if you need like a real thick heavy char on the outside of a piece of meat, well, that can really only be attained in a pan with copious, like, you know, like a a good eighth inch of oil at the bottom. You take it up to like, you know, basically 360, 400 deep fry temperature. And then the the trick with this is you can actually do it without making a lot of smoke. I've been testing uh, pan frying. And the trick is that you bring the whole pan up relatively slowly to deep fryer temperature, which is like 365 in that with with the layer of oil in it. Then when you put the meat into sear, you crank the hell out of it as high as it'll go so that you maintain your heat input at that high level. Like that's the trick, right? It doesn't actually help you to have your oil catch on fire and smoke. What you really need to do is bring it up to the temperature where it's searing and then hold it there as best as you can. Um, so anyway, so like in that kind of a regime, in order to get a good crust on a steak, you really need to do um, three minutes. So you do like one and a half, flip, one and a half, do that twice, three minutes, and you can get a good crust. Problem is, if you do that afterwards, um, you are going to overcook the meat, like pretty much straight up. You're going to overcook the meat. And so if you pre-sear it, you can cut down that post-sear to like a minute on a side or a minute and a half on a side and you're not going to overcook the meat and when you do a pre-sear your meat's at fridge temperature it's at like five degrees celsius and so there's very little overcook on a on a pre-sear now you know this is something that's been borne out by like you know many many trials that i ran back when i was cooking at the french culinary institute but i'm you know i'm testing it more now for a kind of home people the problem is is that uh, even I don't pre-sear meat all the time because – and I probably shouldn't say this. I'm like uh, intensely lazy and if – and you're not supposed to do this because they're not designed for it. But a lot of times I will just take the meat as it comes in the pack, right, because I'm buying pre-pack cut big steaks like like high – like a lot of very nice steaks that are cut by you know high, high-end producers – of like things like the Piemontese beef or these things come like you know pre-portioned packed in the thick steaks and I've cooked directly in those you can't pre-sear if you don't take it out of the pack you know what I mean uh, but I, sh- I, I really shouldn't do that and I shouldn't recommend doing that but anyway but so I do a lot of work without the pre-searing but pre-searing can help to not overcook on the post-sear but my current method is to instead of dropping the circulator five degrees which is what I used to do and letting it sit for 40 minutes is I pull it directly out uh, a couple minutes before I'm going to serve it and I put it into a pot of uh, running tap water. So I'll just put the pot in the sink, turn the tap water on, just turn it on enough so that it's flowing constantly and throw the meat into that depending on how long you're going to sear between two and four minutes depending on on how many times you're going to sear it. You could take it up to five minutes and that just – really pushes the outside temperature of the meat down without really affecting the core very much. And then if you go and sear right away, you know, you're one and a half, one and a half, or if you need to, one and a half, one and a half, one and a half, one and a half, you're not overcooking nearly as much of the meat. And the integrated temperature of the meat across the whole piece ends up being 
higher than it would have been if you had just dropped the entire piece of meat five degrees, if that makes sense. So, like, these are the kind of, like, finishing, like, things I'm trying to work on and trying to make them as easy as I can for, like, working at home. But I, I had uh, a fail, a couple failed experiments this weekend. I, I'm uh, working on, like, a lot of the things I want to work on for home are, like, uh, what I consider, like, party tricks. So, like, they're, like uh, I'm going to have, like, an everyday section, which is going to be, like, steaks, which is basically one of the things that I do, like, on an everyday basis. But then more, like, um, you know, when you're going to have, like, a large group over or for large gatherings, like, if you want to do, like, if you want to do fried chicken, I actually do low temp my fried chicken ahead of time so that I can also make onion rings and french fries without having to change the temperature of the oil constantly, right? Uh, and I can also have different sizes of chicken pieces and not worry about whether or not I'm putting in a bunch of wings with, with a bunch of breasts because they're already pre-cooked. So, um, you know, there's going to be that section, but I also want like kind of like more party party tricks like whole fish or um, things like that. So I, I did a whole fish like a three a three pound red snapper, um, and trying to figure out like the right time temperature for it. But then I, I was worried about the finishing. So like normally, what I would do is heat up a big vat of oil and then like set up this like incredibly dangerous like uh, fry tray, crank it, and then do like ladle fry for like you know five minutes. And I tried to do a home version of that, and not only did it not get as crispy as I wanted, like, I was like, I'm not going to recommend that someone at home sit here with a ladle and ladle, like, you know, fry oil everywhere, like, in a, in a hot kitchen, because, like, A, it's going to freak a lot of people out, and B, like, someone's going to get burnt and blame me for it, you know what I mean? Like, really burnt. And so, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, a good way to, like, a good way to, to reliably finish a whole fish. Like, that's something I'm interested in. Um... Working on had another failed experiment where uh, so I I bought like just a chuck steak you know what I'm talking about like the thick chuck steaks where they bone out the the uh, the seven they bone out the the chuck and they put it back together into a, a roast and I'm cutting into a steak like two two inches thick and then uh, I I cooked it for a day I lucked out I didn't get a livery flavoring one but I wanted to get it kind of tender maybe when I went a little long like I probably should have done it like 18 hours instead of 24 hours and I had a deep sear on I crusted off but um yeah people ended up and it, but I, the thing is I served it next to a legit ribeye right <laughs> and people were like the ribeye is better I was like oh well they're like you know I would have liked the other one had you not given me the 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 ribeye, but I obviously I like the ribeye better. I was like, oh, so you can't you can't win. Like I'm trying to win somehow, Anastasia, and you can't you can't win. So like I was like, oh, this giant piece of like chuck is like a third of the price of the ribeye. Um, and you know what? I took something that's a third of the price of the ribeye, and I maybe made it eighty percent as good, but that's not like the same as as good as. So I don't know. These are the kinds of things I'm trying to work out in the in the book, like where I. Where I hit and what I do. You know, one of the problems with low temping a uh, piece of meat like that, going back to collagen, which we were talking about for the past couple of shows, is that um, in a multi-muscle piece of uh, meat that doesn't have bones in it, you actually have um, the um, the outside, the silver skinny pieces that surround each muscle. You know, the epimysium. You have that in there, and that stuff does not dissolve well low temp, and so it doesn't. It, it like feels weird. You know what I'm talking about? Stringy stars. Like it's like it's cooked. It's tender, but it's like stringy. I don't know. These are things I'm working on. So yeah, finishing. Any any suggestions or ideas people have, uh, I welcome them because uh, you know I got to test them. Do you have any suggest? Are you still there? Do you have any suggestions or things I should test out? 
Uh, I mean, I'm still here, but I don't. I mean, I think, I, unfortunately, I think deep frying is just uh, beyond the pale for most people. Uh, so anything that involves, like, a lot of oil or, uh, you know, a lot of sort of splashing, a lot of hot oil at the end seems... Uh, seems like a tall order for people yeah i know it's a shame because deep frying is such a freaking good technique because it hits all sides of the meat at once like i might yeah you know it's it's a pain deep frying is so like such a good technique as i've said many times on the show it it it, like is god's cooking technique it's like it's like it's dry it's instantaneous very high watt density dry-ish heat that crisps stuff really quickly. You know what I mean? It's such a good technique, but it's such a pain for most people. So yeah, I'm trying to think of non-frying. But the other thing is like, what are you going to do? Like I remember years ago I saw, you know, one of the early books that Eric Repair had come out with. I saw him give a talk at Barnes & Noble. This was a long, long, long time ago. Uh, I don't even think I was working at the French Culinary yet, or you know, maybe I just started. And uh, he was like, you know, someone was asking him like uh, recommendations for broiling fish, right? And he says, I don't write recipes for home people to broil fish because their broilers suck so hard that it would make me cry to have them boil broil fish in their house. So he just doesn't write recipes for it. And so like anytime I'm thinking, well, I could try to like finish something in a broiler, I think back to like a crying Eric repair and I'm like, you know, oh man, you know, I don't want to make, I don't want to write recipes that make Eric repair cry. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. Seems like a very nice guy. Yeah. You know, and plus, like, it, like anytime someone's crying because I've produced something of low quality, it just makes me so sad. You know, it just makes me so sad. Oh, speaking of quality, though. Um, I mean, would you, I like to use the Wawa when I'm actually sad. But here's the, uh, you know, the um, I've been working on fish temperatures, which is another thing people can chime in on. So I've been pushing my fish temperatures consistently a little bit higher than I would have, let's say, five or six years ago because uh, I'm trying to get out of the polarizing range of fish cooking temperatures, which are those uh, kind of ultra-low temperatures, like in the high 40s. Um, But the problem is is that uh, with the exception of stripers, which I cook at a higher temperature, like I'm cooking like this red snapper, for instance, at too low a temperature to pasteurize it. And so I have to keep all my cook steps down to under my, you know, under my window of, um, of safety. And so it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting situation. So if like, you know, I cooked the snapper for an hour and a half at a temperature that's not a pasteurization temperature, it's not a growth temperature, but it's not a pasteurization temperature either. Uh, and a lot of the fish has stayed in a kind of a, in a bad zone for a while, uh, so you're hoping you can kill some of that stuff in the post finish. But this is all the stuff I'm wrestling with right now, wrestling with. You don't want to give someone an unsafe recipe unless you say, hey, P.S., this is an unsafe recipe. You know what I mean? But anyway, there's always going to be someone like, why'd you, yes. give me, why'd you give me an unsafe recipe? Because that's the way I cook it at home. You know what I mean? Stas just doesn't care. Oh, uh, but anyway, so I'll work on it. If you have any suggestions, call back in. Uh, you know, I was good to talk to you. Oh, we have a f- okay, cool. We have a follow up from last week. Jeffrey writes in about fish sauce. Uh, remember, we were looking for the Japanese fish sauces, which are awesome. Uh, and I suggested Mutual Trading Company. 
Jeffrey called, said, I called the Mutual Trading Company in Los Angeles. I'm not far from there and wanted to ask about the showroom. They do have Ishiri fish sauce at seven sixty a bottle in stock, but are out of stock on the IU at fourteen twenty a bottle. They should have it by late March, and they can ship US, uh, UPS ground out of state. I think the person who was asking was in Seattle. Uh, and call 213, this is the uh, mutual trading, uh, 213-626-9458. And if you've never had these Japanese fish sauces, you must go and purchase them right now. Uh, Scott wrote in about um, uh, slushy machines. Touched on it very briefly uh, last uh, week, but I'll go through the whole question now. Fan of liquid intelligence and so far enjoying cooking issues. Just wait, you won't. Keep listening and you won't. Uh, my issue is that every source I can find says that the minimum sugar content of a slush machine drink uh, should be 12 bricks. But for some drinks, that's just way too sweet. I don't have the capability to push my machine to the limit because it's for personal use. I want it. It's my baby, and I don't want to break it. So for those of you that don't know what's going on here, um, when you, let's say you're doing a non-alcoholic drink. Then you know you have to have a certain amount of sugar in the drink. Otherwise, it's going to freeze solid. And if your slushy machine freezes solid – the dasher, which is the spinning, you know, spinning doodle inside of the ice cream thing, can seize up. And if it seizes up, you can burn out your motor. And even if you don't seize it up, but your, um, you know, it's the mixture is too stiff, it can put the motor under uh, a lot of excess strain. So manufacturers of slushy machines tend to recommend that you have a certain minimum amount of sugar in a mix, so that you don't, um, so that you don't mess up. The mess up the machine. Now the problem here is we'll, we'll get it. I'll get into the. I'll get into the rest. Um, but that's that's what the, the crux of the matter is. Is that you don't want to have uh, um, a drink in there that freezes so solid that it ruins the machine. Okay, so then back to the question. My theory is that I can trade out some of that 12 bricks for higher alcohol content and still get a good slush that doesn't risk machine failure. Uh, no one online has addressed this specifically. Uh, and I'm always skeptical of bars giving away their exact machine recipe to the local newspaper for all sorts of reasons that could be inaccurate and cost me a machine. Yeah, people give out wrong recipes all the time. Most of the time, I don't think it's uh, malice. Do you, Stas, when chefs give out bad recipes, do you think it's no. – I think it's just they don't bother really converting their restaurant recipe to a home recipe in a way that makes sense. I think that's mainly what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway. I mean, I guess sometimes – there. Uh, you know what? Back in the day, like – Back in the day, I think chefs always used to hold something back from recipes so that you couldn't exactly duplicate what they're doing. But I think that's kind of a thing of the past. I don't really feel that anymore. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Uh, My question is, uh, how much alcohol do I need to compensate for a given amount of bricks reduction to make a slush? If there's no good answer, is there a way to figure out by experimentation without risking my machine? I do a lot of frozen baggy experiments, but I don't see how these uh, relate to the machine. They do relate, in fact. They do relate. If you do a test in a frozen baggie, you can check the texture of it uh, just by putting it in your freezer. Like a regular home freezer that gets down to about minus 20, somewhere around minus 20, negative 4 Celsius. Um, Sorry, negative 4 Fahrenheit, minus 20 Celsius in that range is a pretty good approximation of what the texture of your frozen drink is going to be like in a machine. But – so it's not a bad approximation. It's not perfect, but it's not bad. Or do you have any good anecdotes about this? I'd uh, be less against pushing the limits of my machine if I could get if I could access sugar and alcohol content of the final slush mix with great accuracy on a hydrometer. But I'm aware that alcohol distorts bricks value. Uh, since I use spreadsheets to measure alcohol and sugar content, I can implement whatever advice you have with some precision. Scott, okay. 
uh, here's the thing. So, like, there are people like, you know, Jeffrey Morgenthaler who has uh, – he has a long blog post on using a slush machine. And he advocates a straight bricks uh, percentage. Um, I forget ex- exactly what he oh, – he says 12 to 16 bricks. But he's doing 12 to 16 bricks on a finished drink. And that is not a measure of sweetness. Alcohol, you cannot accurately measure uh, um, sugar and alcohol with any form of refractometer or hydrometer. You can't do it. Uh, so like typically in a, in, a, in a bar scenario, when you're measuring bricks, you're measuring with a refractometer. And alcohol – and sugar are incredibly confounding. Now, it could be just the lucky, lucky case that um, you know that it, you know that in the general thing, a ratio of things that taste good, right? That somewhere that they confound each other. Typically, such that twelve to sixteen bricks on a refractometer, theoretical bricks. It's not actual bricks, right? It's what the refractometer reads. Happens to be uh, a good level. But I would not. I would not do this this way for uh, a recipe recipe creation. I would simply write down how much alcohol and sugar you are adding to uh, the mix. And uh, as I said. Last week, like my Brix levels uh, in uh, in frozen drinks um, are um, eighty five grams uh, per liter. So that is uh, see uh, that's eight point five bricks theoretically in that area, right? Is that right, Stas? Eight point five. I think that's eight point five bricks. So it's like a lot a lot lower. Uh, and then I'm doing um, about. Uh, 14 to 15 percent alcohol, right? And in that, I'm doing about a little under like 0.6 to 0.9 percent of uh, acid, assuming like you know if you think about regular lemon or lime juice is about six percent um, acidity, and so that's what I'm shooting for about 14 to 15 percent alcohol and about uh, 85 grams the liter of sugar, um, which is like I say about 8.5 bricks, and um, and then. 06 to 0.9% of acid. Now, the issue here is that drink is going to be fine textured in your machine, right? Uh, and if you're worried about it, like up the al- like go to the higher end of the alcohol range. The problem is is that high alcohol drinks like that melt extremely quickly. And this is why most um, like you know, crappy daiquiri joints in New Orleans are pushing drinks that are closer to the 7% range. So you're talking about much lower alcohol content. And if your alcohol content is that much lower, down like 7, seven uh, ABV, that's when you're going to need to boost your sugar into a higher range. So then you might – I haven't tested drinks in that sugar ratio, but with those drinks, I would assume that you do have to push it higher, like over 10 um, you know, ten, eleven to get it to you know to freeze uh, right, or ten, maybe ten. Anyway, but uh, that's how I would do it. I would do the baggy test to see the texture uh, ahead of time. It's going to give you a rough idea of how the slushing machine works, and then I don't think you're going to and monitor it the first time you you make it. Like if it starts getting really thick, like dope it with a little extra alcohol to thin it out right away. Uh, but I would always dope with alcohol rather than sugar because a little pure ethanol will change the freeze rate pretty quickly uh, without adjusting the overall balance that much. Um, anyway, hope that helps. Do you think that helped? I don't know. Yeah. You want to take a call, Dave? Yeah, sure. Caller, you're on the air. Caller, still Hello. Oh. Hey, how you doing? Hi. Are we on the air? Yes. Hello? Hey, what's Sissy? up? 
Hi. So this is Claire. I've called in before. I have the Vegetti vegetable spiralizer. Yeah. <laughs> have you shoved anything of new course. in your Vegetti recently? I've been. I've kind of retired. I think I overate it. You've retired your vegetti. I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> I have to. I have to take a break. But <laughs> more on that later. So, Dave, I have. I'm in an epic battle with my sister, who's on the line. Okay. And we got. Hi. Big, Hello. This is Sissy. We got in a big fight over Christmas because I made a beautiful beef tenderloin for Christmas, and then we froze some of it her the hammer's instructions and then I asked the hammer how to de-saw it and she gave me very specific instructions put it in a Ziploc bag with butter and oil and then put it in water at 128 degrees something like that so I I do that and then I go out to walk the dog and then to see what and did then you and then I walked in the room not knowing any of this and let me preface this by saying I'm more the environmentalist in the family and not the cook. Right. So I walk in and see the pot boiling with these baggies of meat, plastic baggies. Wait, it was boiling? Out, sorry? It was boiling? They were they were definitely bubble, simmering a little bit. They were, they were not boiling. It was 128 degrees. I mean, well, wait, 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 before we go any further, was this in, was this on a stove or was this in a circulator? On a stove. Uh, and Claire, to be to be fair to your sister, you left the building with something that <laughs> was not supposed to go above 120 degrees Fahrenheit on the well, stove. Well, I assigned it to my mother, who obviously got sidetracked. Right. <laughs> this is a, you know, I'm not saying anything negative about your mom. So let's okay, keep going. So. So, sister, okay, you came so in and you I saw a simmering pot. All right. Freak out! I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? Why are you? Why? Why do you have plastic pot plastic in the in the pot? And I grab them all with tongs or a, a fork thing, and I throw them into the sink okay. because I am concerned about the plastic leaking into the food and being toxic. Mm-hmm. So then. Claire and I get into a huge fight about sous and whether we use the right plastic or whether it's even a good idea or the technique, whatever. So then we start Googling stuff and emailing it back and forth to each other. Um, I guess our question is, what is the proper way to do beef? Who's food grade back and what is the temperature? All right, let me, let me start by saying I'm completely horrified. <laughs> By what happened to that poor piece of meat that never did anyone any harm at all. Um, Secondly, Ziploc bags, if you actually use real Ziploc bags um, from, uh, you know, the uh, S.C. Johnson Wax, a family company. Oh, wait, or no, it's just Johnson. Yeah, S.C. Johnson Wax, a family company. Uh, They're made of strictly polyethylene. The polyethylene doesn't have any plasticizers or, you know, it's like it's BPA-free and all that. So as plastics go, it is kind of the friend, like the bio-friendliest plastic, right? That and polypropylene are the two kind of – and I guess nylon, right, which they use for implants. But, that, but nylon typically – there's a lot of times a nylon layer on the inside of some vacuum bags. But you're not using that. You're using Ziploc. Ziplocs are pure polyethylene. 
they um, they are um, food safe. The, and, and I have gotten confirmation from the um, from the company. Uh, like in writing, basically saying that yes, it's okay, you know, to do um, sous vide work in their bags. Here's the problem: the temperature limit for a um, polyethylene bag is, you know, it, it won't melt uh, until it gets above boiling, but it really loses all of its strength once it gets over about. Uh, 85 to 90 Celsius, right? It starts getting real floppy. Uh, it starts feeling like something's going wrong, like you're going to have some leaching problems. I've never like noticed that to, to be the case, and, and but typically when I'm using Ziploc bags, I prevent them from boiling uh, because they're not really meant to stand it. Um, so sous vide in a Ziploc, fine. Uh, sous vide in a Ziploc when it's boiling, like that could be problematic, not from a safety standpoint so much as from like uh, an integrity of the of the bag um, standpoint. Um, you know, there I've been looking into ways of doing um, trying to do um, low temp work without the plastic. It's just a real hassle. You know what I mean? Either you have to circulate oil, or yeah, I'm looking into different ways of doing it, but it's just a real. It's a real kind of pain in the butt. But yes, polyethylene is among the friendliest. So it's not like it's in PVC or, or anything like that. You know what I mean? But so I, don't, I, don't, I don't what give if the family we, cancer. You're not, you're not giving the family cancer. You are. Thank you. And the other the, the thing is, is that like, uh, but you are, you know, you are, it was beef tenderloin? Yes. Holy crap. Yes. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, like. How did it taste when it was all said and done? Or was there enough of an argument that it didn't even get eaten? Did it get eaten? Was it pre-cooked? Well, I think it was spiker. I threw I threw a fresh piece for her in the microwave and made it extra well done oh so God. that she didn't have to eat the no, I just oh Before God. she started to do that, and then I said, no, don't be so dry. No, don't worry but, about it. But my question is, in doing a little bit of research on this, because I am, I'm, I'm like, you know, Bottled water, hot in a car. I don't drink that. You know, I'm a, I'm very aware of some of the issues with plastic and leaching into food and whatnot. My question is, you know, when we did, Claire and I did our research on this to try and prove the other one wrong, we saw that um, mason jars were an option. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean... The problem with a mason jar is a mason jar needs to be packed 100% full in order for you to get good heat transfer uh, out. So like yeah. like if you take a tenderloin, you're going to have to like pretty heavily abuse it to like – so like yeah, you could treat it like a tuna fish, right? You could pack it down in and you could then pour oil around it and then like seal it off and that's going to work. But it's going to take a lot longer for the temperature to go through and the problem with tenderloin is – is that tenderloin, you really don't want to cook it that long at a low temperature. So like let's say you were going to cook it – I'm just going to choose a number, 54 degrees Celsius, right? Uh, the reason being that tenderloin, the less you cook tenderloin temperature-wise, the better because it has basically no connective tissue in it. It's like so mm-hmm. tender that um, if you – like it tends to taste – Drier and more overcooked at lower temperatures than, let's say, a ribeye does, right? A ribeye tends to taste more overcooked at a lower temperature than, let's say, a skirt steak does. So, um, you know, 
like tenderloin wants to be cooked down around 54 uh, Celsius, right around there. And I don't, I don't, I don't know in my head what that is, but like that's in Fahrenheit, but that's roughly what you want. But in order to get that temperature through a piece of through a mason jar, uh, in you know, it's going to be a long, long time. And typically, you don't want your your tenderloin cooking for longer than about. Um, I don't know, 40 minutes, because if you're doing, you're going to start getting textural effects. Now, that's if you serve them side by side. People might not notice if you cooked it for, you know, too long and served it to them. They're like, oh, this is good. This is tender. But if you serve them one side by side that had only been cooked for like, you know, 40 minutes or something like that, they would tend to like that one um, a lot more. So you boil this sucker, you, you boiled it and then threw it in a sink. And then microwaved it. And then microwaved it. <laughs> Like what? what, what and not, and not all of them got microwaved. I finished. I finished it off searing on the stove. Okay. I only microwaved her a fresh piece. Okay. How thick but were the How thick were the pieces? It, so I finished it on the stove. Was it still frozen in the center when you cut it? No, it was no. actually really tender. We uh-huh. then we got de- it was good. I ate the sous vide. I ate that that the ones that she had cooked, and we put. Bernays sauce on it, and it was delicious. Oh, that's that's Bernays sauce for you. Right, I know you all are concerned about the health, I mean, about the um, cooking technique. Yeah, yeah. I am. I was more concerned about the health aspect of it and, you're fine. and the concern you're, you're, about the high heat plastic. Your health, you're fine. Your health is fine. Your health is fine. <laughs> I'm just still like, I'm trying to picture what the meat looked like when it came out. Did it have those weird little, like, like crevices that overcooked meat gets on the outside where it's gray on the outside and then it went to like raw in the center. Is that what it looked like when you cut the medallions out of it? No, it, well, it was really I, evenly cooked. Honestly, Seriously. Dave, I think I did her a favor because I threw them out of the boiling water, which it probably wouldn't have boiled if my mom had kept her eye on it, but she, she wandered off somewhere. So I actually <laughs> might have saved the dinner. I, I'd like to look at it that way anyways. <laughs> Did you enjoy your microwaved piece? <laughs> she didn't well, even eat that one. Just you, to prove no, we didn't that she one. was going to tough it out. Oh, all right. So, and, yeah, and I knew I knew not to eat that one. I would like yeah, you to note that you are both alive. I mean. <laughs> We don't know whether your endocrine system has been disrupted. Just kidding. There's 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 no endocrine disruptors <laughs> yeah, in it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm working on. By the way, invest in a circulator because it's been my uh, it's been my experience that if you tell someone to watch a pot, that uh, they will never watch it. No, That's right. like if, if you tell someone Especially to turn off a home. stove at a particular yeah. time, it will never happen. Uh, the problem with frozen is is it's hard to calculate. Um, if you want, they, they have like, you know, uh, years ago before circulators were really cheap, everyone was trying to figure out how to use like uh, picnic coolers to do low temp work. Very hard though with frozen because, um, mm-hmm. you have to do a lot more calculation of like, um, the amount of energy it takes to thaw the meat first, but like, that's always an option, but it's a huge pain in the butt. So like, you know, uh, just carry a circulator with you, like wherever you go. And then that, that can be, you know, it can be your mechanical mom. And watch the watch the pot for you. You know that's what I mean. That's a good answer. Yeah, we should put that on our Christmas list. For but I'm, I'm I'm thankful that Nastasia at least had butter in the bag. Yeah, at least yes. you followed that piece of advice and put butter in the bag. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping thank us solve you. this uh, very difficult family issue, and now we know. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, some people some people are just never going to be convinced on the on the plastic issue in general. I mean, the thing I don't like about it is you end up throwing away like everyone says you can reuse the plastic. No, you can't. Who the hell reuses Ziploc bags? You, if you if someone said, here's the washed out Ziploc bag, you'd be like, please. No, thank you. You know what I mean? Another thing yeah. about another thing about Ziplocs. If you're going to pre-sear the meat beforehand, you need to let it cool a little bit before it goes into Ziploc because you can – as soon as it goes above the boiling temperature of water, you will melt the plastic onto your food. That's not cool because you, know, you don't want literally to eat the plastic. Uh, I mean not that it will necessarily <laughs> hurt you but you know, it's just like you don't want to eat the plastic. Um, yeah. So there's, there's that. But uh, of all the plastics, it's one of the friendlier ones. Great. All right, great. Well, thank well, you thank so much. You. All right, no problem. Bye. Hey, Dave, we okay, got to. Have a big bye. day. Bye. Right, bye. Dave, we got to take our break real quick, and then you can come back and do your sign off. All right, we'll take a commercial break. Come right back. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a pretty good cook. Maybe you already know that sous vide is the best way to get a kick-ass, juicy steak. And with Juul, a new sous vide tool from Chef Steps, you can do so much more. Smoky tender ribs, homemade yogurt, creme brulee, bright, crunchy pickles, vibrant purees, even smooth, creamy ice cream, all perfectly cooked every time. Juul is sleek and small enough to fit in your kitchen drawer, and it's operated by an elegant smartphone app that's been designed to remove the guesswork, get you cooking faster, and give you the information and inspiration you want when you want it. Browse Chef Steps' amazing recipes and helpful guides. Choose your perfect doneness for any meat and get notified when your food is ready. You know you'll get great results, so you can focus on sides and sauces or just pour yourself a cocktail and chill until you're ready for a delicious dinner. For more information and to order yours now, visit chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. So, so tenderloin boiled, <laughs> thrown, thrown across the kitchen, <laughs> and then nuked. <laughs> That's just a horror show. That's a horror show. Can you imagine what was said that day? <laughs> That's a horror show. It's a horror. It's a horror show. Um, I figured I'd give you the break to recover from that a little bit, I but know. I guess it didn't work. First of all, by the way. Of party, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm gonna. I have one, one last thing I gotta get to quickly because I have someone cooking for their pregnant wife. You also second. need to read that thing in front of you real quickly. Uh, all right, we'll do that on the way out. All right, Listen. thank you. So, uh, uh, I'm going back to the book that I'm writing. I'm working on the different party tricks, like '70s style party tricks that I'm gonna put in there. I need to know what you guys think is fun, right? So, I'm gonna do a big whole, big old whole fish. Uh, try to make it friendly for home and a smaller whole fish like the one I did over the weekend. I'm going to obviously do like a big old prime rib. I'm going to do a crown roast of pork, I think. Um, but then like, you know, what else, what other old school like things that people don't do anymore that are typically overcooked do you want to see? Like, do you guys want to see a beef Wellington? I can do a sick beef Wellington, speaking of tenderloin, um, or not, you know, and like old school straight up duck cells puff pastry and get it like perfect. But I don't know if this is the kind of thing people are interested in. So any sort of party tricks that people want me to, uh, to uh, you know, put in the book for uh, sous-, sous, vide, sous vide party tricks, uh, let me know. Um, okay. Uh, Pedro wrote in. Uh, and by the way, AK wrote in. We're not going to get to it this week, but on mocktails. But I'll have a lot to say about, like, how to make nice mocktails next week, I hope. 
Uh, Pedro writes in from uh, Lisbon, I think. Uh, first of all, thanks for the great work uh, you guys do every week. Just a couple of questions. My wife is 23 weeks pregnant, and I have some questions regarding food safety and sous vide. Uh, she isn't uh, immune to toxoplasmosis, so we take extra precaution with salads and raw ingredients, etc. By looking at the low temperature charts from Cooking Issues blog, which you can still look up, by the way. Uh, I know that because I looked them up this morning. Uh, um, can I assume that cooking beef slash pork slash duck for one hour at 58 degrees Celsius will make it safe? Um, okay, so what they're talking about is I have uh, I took uh, all the old and I think there's been some newer newer charts. I'm going to look into it uh, for the book, but looking at the charts where you basically have time and temperature. So when you're talking about food safety, you're talking this aspect of food safety. You're talking about killing bacteria and so, you know, uh, people, you know, back in the day used to say you have to cook to this preposterously high temperature because the rule is you only have to hold it there for 10 or 15 seconds and then it's safe because you've killed everything. But, as, you know, as most of us know who, you know, have been working in this field for a while, that you can actually make things safe by cooking at a much lower temperature for a much longer period of time. And so um, in, in poultry, which, by the way, it was measured in chicken, not in duck, and it's not exactly the same, but for chicken – uh, and you would never cook this low, but if you cooked chicken at 58 degrees for Celsius for an hour, you would kill salmonella. And so it would be safe in terms of salmonella because that's what that was measured for, a little over an hour actually. The trick with this is – and so you assume the same thing for duck and whatnot. The trick with this is is that uh, when you're actually trying to pasteurize something, you don't count the exterior of the meat. You only count from when the core makes it up to that temperature. So you have to build in the safety factor for pasteurization to deal with once the core reaches pasteurization temperature, um, you know, that's when you start your – uh, start your clock. And for salmonella, you could probably uh, go lower if you cooked longer, and there's probably now numbers out for duck as opposed to for chicken, which is where I did my thing. Beef numbers are much lower. So if you look at the curve for uh, beef, beef, they're not trying to kill uh, salmonella. They're trying to kill um, uh, uh, e-, uh, e. coli. Um, so anyway, so th- that's how that works, but it's from the middle. And then secondly, we normally go to a pizzeria where the oven, the outer layer is made of gold, uh, just for the fun of it. Uh, it, it this is in Lisbon. It's called uh, Golden Oven, Fornadoro. Uh, it's so hot that the pizza only stays inside for 90 seconds, so the ingredients get roasted pretty quick. Is this also safe? Uh, as you could tell, it's our first baby. Uh, and then, I, and then uh, they, they went to Booker and Dax when they're on their honeymoon. You know, unfortunately, it's you know closed. But you know, when you come back, hopefully, we have the new place open. And lastly, I forgot to ask about alcohol and food. Is it safe to use it in risottos and beer batters for frying, uh, or the you know will the heat evaporate it totally? The heat will not evaporate it totally, but there it'll, heat will evaporate a lot of it, and so much of it is. Uh, gone and it's usually so diluted that like I've never worried or hesitated serving it to um, a a pregnant person right because A you're not adding that much and B you're cooking off the majority of the alcohol so it's a very small amount that's you know that's in there the only time that I worry about it is when I have someone who either for moral reasons or um, you know just has to be really strict with themselves to not consume any alcohol that they uh, that's the only time that I would forego on something like that and the um, 
you know, and later on, like, you know, in breastfeeding, we, uh, I've talked about on the show before, like the new research that goes against what I used to say on consumption of alcohol uh, just prior to breastfeeding. But anyway, we'll talk, talk about that later. Back to your pizza oven being safe. If you are looking at, I mean, those temperatures are so high that typically people who are cooking a 90-second, like, Neapolitan-style pizza um, aren't putting a boatload of toppings on, right, Stas? Like, mm-hmm. they're not, like, topping the hell out of it. And if you get up to the point where, like, the, the cheese is nicely melted and the crust is cooked, right? So you know how, like, sometimes, Stas, when you look at it, like, if they try to do the super fast, super high thing and the crust is too thick, you get that layer of uncooked crust in between that thing where the sauce hits. That's an indication that it hasn't, like, gotten up to those really high temperatures. But if the sucker's cooked all the way through, I'm pretty sure you're hitting in the – at least in the 60s of, of degrees Celsius. And anything up in there is wiping out anything that's going to alias. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, and uh, But, you know, it's good to worry about um, – Good to worry about these things when uh, when your wife is pregnant. And if I were you, I'd be busting out like all kind of like pasteurized uh, steaks, rare, and all kind of runny eggs pasteurized because that's what I that's whenever whenever I had the pregnant when my wife was pregnant or my sister in laws or when friends come over pregnant, like, I always give them that stuff that they're not supposed to have at restaurants because I know I can do it safely with the circulator uh, and. I would give my normal sign-off, but I'm supposed to give this, uh, this ad that, in fact, we were reading in the middle. So I'm going to sign off now, right? And we, then I'm going to read the ad. You the sign-off after the ad. Keep I'll it consistent. Off. Okay, I'll keep it consistent. Yeah. yeah. So this thing that I'm about to recite to you actually happened in the middle of the show. Even though you might think it's the end of the show, this, what I'm reading to you now is actually happening in the middle. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> Modernist Pantry was created by food lovers and cooking issues fans just like you. Janie, Chris, and the Modernist Pantry family share your passion for experimentation and have everything you need to make culinary magic happen in your own kitchen. Professional chef, home cook, food enthusiast, no matter your skill or experience, Modernist Pantry has something for you. They make it easy to get the ingredients and tools you need and can't find anywhere else so that you can spend less time hunting and gathering and more time creating memorable dishes and culinary experiences. Visit ModernistPantry.com today to discover why Cooking Issues listeners call Modernist Pantry the cook's secret weapon. Be sure to check out their new kitchen alchemy blog at blog.modernistpantry.com for free recipes, tips, and tricks. And don't forget to follow Modernist Pantry on social media to keep up with what's new and exciting in the world of culinary ingredients and tools. And that is it, folks, for Cooking Issues. See you next time. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. (music) 